Oh, hi, and welcome to another episode of The Things That Made Me Queer, the podcast that explores queer identities through the pop culture and real life moments that shaped us. I am, of course, your host, Crystal, and I'm delighted to have you back here for another episode and for lots more gay stuff. How are you? What's going on? I just got back from a lovely 10-day holiday in Canada visiting family. It was lovely. It was cold and bright and salt smells were in the air. I went skating. I ate seafood. It was all super, super wholesome and really nice. And I spent a lot of time also with my nephew who is six, and that was really great. And one thing that struck me though, and I hope my sister won't mind me sharing this, but each time I see him, I am so struck by how much of a boy he is. And I mean that in kind of like stereotypical ways. My sister is incredibly thoughtful as a parent and has taken extreme pains to avoid socializing him and my niece into gender roles. You know, she's really conscientious about all of that stuff. And yet, I just, I can't escape it. He gravitates towards playing with trucks. He wants to wrestle constantly. He hates talking about his feelings. And I don't know, maybe maybe all parents listening to this will be like, duh, that's what little boys are mostly like. But it was interesting for me, I guess because most of the kids that I know here in the UK are little girls. And I don't know, maybe just, it kind of got me thinking about how much of gender roles are socially constructed and how much is innate and what that mix is. Probably the answer is a lot of both, but it did set me down a bit of an internet rabbit hole. And it turns out they've done tests on monkeys and monkeys also display similar gender divides when it comes to toys. So boy monkeys will want to play with trucks and things with wheels and girl monkeys tend to gravitate towards dolls. And it turns out you can even predict a bit of a bit of that kind of stuff in boys based on their ring finger to index finger ratio, which is apparently something to do with the amount of testosterone you're exposed to in the womb. Anyway, it's super wild. I found it really fascinating. Who knows how my nephew's going to grow up? Jury's still out, but I guess I will have to love him even if he's a total lad. <laughs> Which I will. Anyway, it's just interesting food for thought and, and maybe useful the next time someone tries to tell you that people are trans because of a whim or because of a fad. There's maybe a bit more innate stuff going on with gender than we are conscious of. Anyway, that's a lot of big thoughts for me before I've even had my coffee for the day. Speaking of the gender of it all, my guest this week is my friend and theater maker and author, Travis Alabanza. We discuss in this episode what it's like being gender non-conforming in the world, why they're moving past the label of non-binary, and how to get into clubs when you're underage. Uh, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, some of this season was recorded last summer. Specifically, this episode was recorded when we were having a heat wave. Uh, I know it's hard to imagine that right now while the UK is dark and freezing cold, but you know what? Just try and soak in some of that heat we were feeling at the time of recording. Feel that? It's sizzling and warm. Let it warm you up, baby. Anyway, let's get into the episode. As always, don't forget to like, Comment, share, subscribe, and do all of the things that you can to spread the word about this podcast. Thank you so much. On with the episode. Alrighty, I am so excited about my guest today. Travis Alabanza is an award-winning writer, performer, and theater maker. And I'm just going to go ahead and list a few of their accolades. They were the youngest recipient of the Artist in Res Residency program at Tate Galleries. Their debut theater show, Burgers, toured internationally and won the Edinburgh Fringe Total Theater Award in 2019. They've given talks on gender, trans identity, and race at Oxford, Harvard, 
Bristol Universities, and more. In 2019, the Evening Standard listed them as one of the 25 most influential under-25-year-olds. They made the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, and The Guardian asked if they are the future of theater. Their new book, None of the Above, which explores society's attitudes to non-binary identities, is out now! And on a personal note, I first met Travis at, I believe, one of their early performances at the RVT. It was also one of my early performances. And it has been such a delight to watch their star continue to rise. I'm so happy to welcome them to the podcast. It's Travis Alabanza. Hi. I always wonder what's going to happen when I'm no longer under 30. Do I just suddenly... (laughs) Does it all stop? <laughs> Those list things are so silly in that way, aren't they? They are. I once, when I was in my previous, uh, my previous life before I was like a world famous drag queen, I once made a thirty, an under and including thirty list. So you still have that one last year where okay. you can under and including. Okay, perfect. That's that's going to be my golden year. I'm hanging out for it. <laughs> How are you? I'm okay. Yeah, it's so hot. I'm so uh, sweaty. Yeah, um, well. But it's nice. It's good. Yeah, it's good. You're How on are you a. Doing? I'm great. I'm great. I'm also hot and sweaty, but that's just part of the course for me. Yeah. <laughs> You're on a book tour at the moment. I just finished on Sunday. Yeah, I just finished on Sunday. So a How few days it? ago, it was great. I mean, I was really nervous. You must know this of like I haven't done like put out tickets for sale since the pandemic. So mm-hmm. I was just like, uh, is anyone going to come? Is anyone going to do anything? Like, does anyone care anymore? But it was packed and it was really fun. I mean, book tours are kind of easy compared to other tours I've done. You just read. Right. You Lovely. Know, there's no set tech up. There's no anything. And they're all like, the book tour people, you know, they're so stressed out. They're like, oh my God, is this going to be okay? I'm like, girl, this is an easy gig. We're, we're, do- we're doing okay. <laughs> there's no wig changes. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. costume changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all okay. My lighting cue like, is just the one state. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're fine. We're fine, girl. <laughs> I'm not planning on getting shit face. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I don't know. Maybe you were. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Am I right that that's where we met at the RVT? World yeah, World you're Tavern? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about it and back in the bar whatever days. Uh-huh. That, yeah. I mean, iconic. Iconic. You were there with Reese's Pieces and... Yes. FKA. Yes. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Who's now like an internationally renowned DJ. Yeah. Like I everywhere. Mean, Wow, it's, we didn't know that the talent that we all had bubbling under in those early days when we were just doing our best for 30 pounds from Bar Whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, God bless Bar Whatever. For, it really had, when, you, when you trace it all back, I feel like all the good performers have done a stint at Bar Whatever, you know? Yeah, it's incredible. I, I assume they're still going. Actually, not sure. They are, but I think that... Uh, what can I say? The RVT is, you know, more and more focused on different kind of nights now. And, I you know, it, it lost Ducky. And I think Bar Whatever is also not as have as many nights anymore as well, which sucks. I see. You know? Well, for anyone listening, if um, you should go check out Bar Whatever, wherever they yeah. happen to be and wherever they're doing shows, because you're seeing future stars. Yeah, true. <laughs> or just future people that are under 30. <laughs> Briefly, <laughs> future people that may, will still be under thirty for some amount of time. <laughs> um, so I'm desperate to hear about your new book. I understand there's a copy on the way, but I haven't had a chance to. Um, well, that's check it. that's <laughs> fucked up, isn't it? What the hell? What are they calling this? You can't you can't get the staff anymore, can you? <laughs> T- tell me. Actually, sorry. Before you tell me that, and this is, I think question will lead into it. Um, I always ask my guests how they identify and what their pronouns are. So Perfect. Well, this book is about the fact that I've identified as non-binary for over 10 years and my pronouns are them and they and they have been for nine years. And then this book is written from the point of wondering in lockdown if I still identify that way and if Mm -hmm. I still want to. And the book's called None of the Above. And it's basically looking at where we are in terms of non-binary identities and have we really achieved like is it going in the right direction and I guess my argument is that it's not it's like turning itself it's turning in on itself and the book kind of investigates what it means to be gender non-conforming in the UK but through my dilemma of not knowing whether I want to continue my transition or stay the same. I, I guess, yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about that. What was making you unsure and, and what do you see as the pitfalls of 
non-binaryism, yeah. non-binaryness becoming more prevalent? I guess I felt like we were beginning to go language first instead of experience first. Mm. And it felt like we were using, we were seeing all these ways that non-binary was being kind of, in my opinion, like co-opted to become this kind of neat third gender option, mm-hmm. right? Like people were like, oh, it's male and female and non-binary. Mm-hmm. And then when you broke it down, you're like, well, non-binary doesn't work as a way to categorize a lo- large people because a non-binary person can look extremely different depending mm-hmm. on who they are. And so it didn't feel like a successful way to organize, like around mm-hmm. structure and stuff. But also I felt like the conversation was going further and further away from like structurals, like support and street violence and stuff that actually affects if you're visibly gender non-conforming, mm-hmm. you know, like going out in the street every day like I do, normally wearing a dress, normally having my stubble through, normally having my leg hair and chair. The issue isn't for me about how I identify. The issue for me was about the direct amount of violence I was receiving. Mm-hmm. And that's what was exhausting me. So the book is kind of talking about, is it possible to grow old, still visibly looking like how the world sees you as a man in a dress? Mm-hmm. Or do you have to either play the game and look, you know, cis-presenting either way? And mm-hmm. I guess it was trying to like talk to a gap I felt that was in literature that trans people have all these conversations between each other, but it feels like when we present ourselves to the public, we have to be so careful and rigid because mm-hmm. we're so targeted. Mm-hmm. And this was just trying to be a bit messy in public because I'm a book nerd and so many books throughout history, the ones I love are the messiest, you know? Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And, it had not occurred to me until until you I saw you mentioning it in interviews how it has basically become a, a third gender, which is completely against you know, it's not advocating for a trinary. Yeah. It's right. it um so that's really that's really interesting. And obviously there's a a million ways to be non binary. I it's not it's not a way I identify, but you know, I know lots of people who do and, and it's not just wearing a dress or dressing non-conforming and it doesn't it doesn't it can't be reduced into that neat little box that society would like it to be and i suppose the more the more society becomes aware the the tighter the the confines of that box might become so it's really interesting how has the response been you know i'm only in like the first week of it being out but it's just been really nice like press is obviously you know like press is exhausting because you're often talking to like, we were doing quite a lot of big mainstream press and you're not always getting the, you know, in the UK, press isn't the kindest to trans things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But since the book has landed in queer people's, like, arms and seeing them, like, talk about it and post about it, and that's been the best. And having trans people say that it's felt like it's allowed them to be, like, more confused out loud and more messy, that was really my goal. I felt like what I was struggling with was that I felt like I had to know everything because mm-hmm. everyone else was making us feel so pressured, right? Like mm-hmm. trans people are so vehemently under attack that we have to really strengthen all of our our arguments. And this book was kind of about saying, I don't know if I can do that anymore. I want to be confused. I want to be wrong. I want to change my mind. Mm-hmm. And that was really scary. I was like, maybe people are going to think I'm like some de- like big detransitioner or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of okay with that. And just seeing other trans people read the book and go, oh, this helped me like say that I'm still confused and that's fine. It's been really beautiful. I'm also glad that it's done as well. I've done the first week. I can just kind of let it exist on its own now. I can like go back to other things. Yeah. It must be really scary putting out ideas like that, which are kind of intended for people who are already within the fold to be hearing because you fear that the words could be used against you if the wrong people get them. Oh, yeah. And they will. And, you know, I kept on having this when I was writing it. I was like, they probably will. You know, I've had anti-trans people come for my work before. It will probably happen with this. But I think because I care, like, this sounds like a bit pompous, but like, I care about art so much. I care about queer art so much. It's like what I geek out on. And we have to resist the urge to let our art continually think about cisgender people. And we just have to trust that it will find who it needs to find and that the people I'm inspired by have always been pushing up against that. And 
So I just kind of took power from that. And yeah, it's already been taken sometimes in bad faith, but I think it's quite chic to burn a book. So if they want to burn it, that's, <laughs> that's fine. You know, I don't think books are like, the, I love books, I'm a book nerd, but it's not a holy grail, burn it. Burn no. it. <laughs> you still bought it. <laughs> Will it scream Balenciaga? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I just relate to what you were saying about that, or the, maybe the words I put in your mouth, but I think about that all the time when I want to be critical of drag and say things like, drag is sometimes full of misogyny, mm. or drag is sometimes full of racism, mm. and I want those words to be heard by the drag community, mm. not by gender critical folks who already think that drag is full of misogyny because yeah. I don't think it's inherent to the art form but I yeah. but you know so it's it's a fine line and you and especially when you're working in a public sphere where you know if I'm just tweeting or in your case you're writing a book it's like you kind of lose control over yeah. the audience as soon as you put those words out there so well done brave and I can't wait to read it I mean I can't wait for them to send it to you I can only <laughs> apologize I hope you're getting like a big personal like maybe there's like a hot postman coming to send it Oh, sounds great. <laughs> um, well, should we get into the things that made you queer? Yes, obsessed. I listened to the podcast last week, season one. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Well, you know how it works. Every week, a guest brings a person, a place, a piece of music, a film or TV series, and a wild card that help them understand, embrace, or accept their queerness. And you have sent me the list, and I am very excited to get into it as she pulls it up directly. <laughs> Live on air. Great. So first item is your person, and you said Prince. Yeah. Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. No one's talked about Prince on this podcast yet, so I'm I'm Wait, ready to talk. What about the Prince. fuck has it I just know. been? Has it just been straight people on? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm obsessed. I'm like a huge Prince. I'm a huge music fan. Like, and for me, growing up. I felt like my mum, like, secretly, obviously, she kind of, like, a lot of mums, she knew I was queer before I did. Mm -hmm. And I felt like she was always sending me these, like, secret signals to be like, it's fine, like, I'm ready, like, tell me what you need, like, come on. And she is a huge music head, she loves Prince so much, and she would just show me Prince stuff all the time. She would, like, show me his posters, she would show me his songs, she would show me his videos. And I just remember being so obsessed with the fact that, like, one, I was obviously attracted to him, but two, like, it really was, like, what I felt was my first signs of watching someone just not do masculinity so rigid mm-hmm. and watching someone, like, be more carefree. But then also, like, the only other time I saw that was, like, pantomime. And, like, mm-hmm. that was still fine and that was still great. But, like, it felt like his was, like, you know, didn't feel as much like a performance. It was, like, a embodiment. And, and not was, comedy. And not comedy, it was, like, sexy. And Uh he was being, like, adorned for it. He was being, like, celebrated for it. It was also, like, a bridge between, like, my families, I felt. Like, I don't know, the biggest worry about being queer was, like, oh, shit, am I going to be able to, like, still have my family? Like, and still Mm -hmm. have my acceptance of my, like, you know, quite large black family? Like, and just the fact that they loved Prince and, like, saw him as an icon, I was like, oh, this is, like, a chance to do it, you know? Yeah, there's already, you've got a way in. Yeah. Immediately. And, yeah, and whether or not, I mean, you know, I'm a bit older now and I'm like, okay, Prince might not have even been, like, queer or, like, who knows what was, like, his vibe. But, like, the aesthetic, I mean, the aesthetic was nonstop. It was so good. And he looked so good doing it and he wasn't, like, a joke. You know, he was mm-hmm. taken so serious for his work and his looks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I had the exact same experience with Bowie. Mm-hmm who I think kind of, again, has that sort of place as a potentially just a cis straight man, but was a gateway for a lot of people to help understand something, a different way of being that. Do you, how old were you when you kind of found Prince? 10? 10. I'm going to go with 10. Like, I feel like I started building a lot of my like music. Like I started like paying attention to what my mum was playing music wise in the house around like nine or 10. Mm -hmm. And when she was cooking, she'd always have the music on and she'd open up the doors to try and get us to, like, stop playing on video games to come and help her. And she would blast Prince. And then (laughs) when we got internet, like, she wouldn't allow me to be on, like, MSN all the time because she was like, that's going to rot your brain. So the way I'd bargain is she'd show me, like, 
videos or like archives of different people. And she was like, you can stay on the computer to like learn about different people. That's so nice. Yeah, she like, I mean, she was like, she's a bit wild. Like she's a bit like of a tiger mum. Is that what they call it? Like, you know. Mm-hmm. But like in a cool way, but like it was just her and she would try and keep us occupied all the time. And she'd try and make everything like a learning thing, which I'm helpful for now. I have like a, you know, I I know I read a lot and it's probably because of her. But she'd be like, you're allowed to be back on MSN if you go and like Google about someone and then tell me what you learn about them. And so Prince was one of them. And I think I just got hooked on it from there. Like, I thought he was so cool. I remember when he died, it was like so like obviously really sad, but like seeing all the different artists pay tribute to him and everything mm-hmm. like that, like just an icon, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I love that. Do you have a favorite Prince moment or song or era? Yeah, the video the video for Kiss. Uh-huh. The yeah. vid- that video is so cool because he's like in a crop top, he's got makeup on, he's like really sexual in it. I used to watch it so, so much. Yeah, his moves in it are just so good. I feel like that one is when he's like really saying like, my energy is like not masculine or feminine, you know? Like I'm just kind of doing this beyond thing. I feel like that video is like his perfect amalgamation of it. I, I watch it all the time. I love it. Love it. Yeah. I'm going to go refresh myself on it after after we record. And how about, I mean, are you still a big fan? Have you Could you recommend a way into Prince for people who aren't? fans or any deep cuts for people who are? I think the best way to get to know Prince is watch like a compilation of him accepting awards. <laughs> <laughs> and he does it like with such cheek, such humour, such like silliness and never like earnesty really, which I think is so impressive to be given that many awards and to never even slip into earnest. Like we all say we're going to be badass when we receive awards and then we get it and we're like, oh my god, thank you so much, thank you to my mom. Da, da, da. <laughs> And Prince just, like, stayed cool. Stayed cool. So, yeah, always through the award speeches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the next time you're on a 30 under and including 30 <laughs> list, I want you to channel some Prince. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just be like, I'm actually 42. <laughs> Age is okay. a social construct. <laughs> oh, God, here she goes. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to your next item. Up next, we have your album or song, and we're moving into a different tack with going down the pop route full steam. It's Marina and the Diamonds and her debut album. Babes, I couldn't tell if this was cringy putting this on the list. I I don't think so. It's your life. You know what? I went for like, when I saw the questions, I was like, I'm not even going to try and be cool. Like, I was just like, let me just be real. What made me a fucking faggot? Uh-huh. And, <laughs> you know, nothing will really make you a faggot than queuing outside of, like, uh, I grew up in the southwest of England and we had to travel to Bath to see a live. And uh-huh. you're queuing up for, like, four hours with, like, mega fans that have all blossomed into, like, the twinks that we see today. Uh-huh. And um, you're there, like, just, you know, queuing for four hours, being around all these older gays and, like, ear eavesdropping on all of their like conversations that you're maybe a bit too young to like really understand uh-huh. like I definitely think I learned about what top or bottom men in a queue to see Marine and the Diamonds <laughs> because I was queuing with my like my my fag hag at the time of course you were too young to know all of this but you know she's blossomed into an, a brilliant fag hag and um we're queuing and she's taken me because she was allowed to go to gigs and I would pretend that I went to her house for a sleepover because I wasn't allowed to go to gigs yet. And we went all the way to Bath. And sorry, mum, if you're listening to this, I lied. And (laughs) we were in the queue for four hours because we wanted to like be early to meet Marina and we thought she'd come in. I was in my Stan era. Like, you know, I I loved standing with people. Like it was just so fun. I still do. Um, I just don't have as much time. And yeah, we were sat, we were sat in the queue in front of what I now know is just a good gold standard bear. But at the time, I was like, "Who are these like hairy men that are like chatting and da da da?" And I thought they were so cool because they had merch on, and I was like, "Wow, they can afford merch." And uh, they were talking about, you know, that the gig was going to be full of bottoms. And uh, I oh was my God. so confused. And now I'm like, that's quite raucous to talk about when there's like all these like young underage fans. But anyway, 
And I remember turning around to them and going, excuse me, what's bottom? And then oh, just laughing their ass off so much. And obviously young me just being like, what is going, like inquisitive. And yet <laughs> having a really amazing conversation with them, like really nice for the whole queue. And, you know, now I can see it as like these older gays being so excited by this like young, you know, younger gay asking all these questions about like, what was Bath like? What was Bristol like growing up? Like, you know, just asking these questions, but mm-hmm. it all happened in the Marina and the Diamonds queue. And her fandom was so gay. You know, she has such an intense fandom and they're so gay. Uh-huh. And I am from the ages of like 13, no, 12 to 15. I must've went to like nine different Marina concerts. I was, wow. yeah, I was fully in like Stan mode. And yeah, I just met so many queer people from there. I wasn't on chat rooms, but I was definitely like part of like, I would check up on like fan Tumblr blogs and stuff and it built like a bit of an online community. It was, yeah, it was definitely weird. I contemplated getting like her Electra heart thing tattooed on my cheekbone. I'm really glad I didn't. Mm. But yeah, I was like fully in stan culture and it was pretty gay. I love that. I love that. I relate. I did the same thing with Madonna, but... Um... So much cooler. <laughs> yeah, you picked Madonna. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's cooler. And... The one thing about a Madonna concert is that there's always going to be a lot of mums there. Yeah. So yeah. you're not going to learn about bottoming in the queue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think, I think that makes your experience cooler. It was so cool. It was so fun. And also, like, aesthetically as an artist, like, I mean, we have this about anyone we stand with, but I really do think that, like, when I was younger, I would obviously, like, like so many queers look at pop stars that were creating worlds and as someone that knew they wanted to be creative, like, I don't know, she just like really unlocked like me building a theatrical world for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think she's so cool. But yeah, definitely met loads of gays out and I kissed, I kissed a boy at um, Katy Perry. I kissed a boy at like the third Marina Diamonds concert I went to. I left my friend because I saw a boy like across the concert that was like making eyes at me. And I made out with him during one of the songs. And I remember being like, wow, this is like what teenage queer life is about. Wow. Um, yeah. And that was when she moved to Bristol. Like she, she had bigger gigs then. She was in Bristol. So it's only down the road from me. Like I lived like close to the venue. And I made out with this boy. And then we like hung out afterwards. Um, and it was really like, it was really cute. So I feel like when I think of, there's a lot of artists I stand when I was younger. But I think Moon and the Diamonds, I had like a lot of big kind of epiphany moments yeah really yeah. formative i think that's so lovely i hope one day you get to tell her about this because i think she'd be thrilled so this is when the story gets a bit embarrassing <laughs> 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 i have i met her it's weird we've worked together she set up this amazing fund called the grand plan fund during lockdown which was to support artists of color and she got me as one of the judges for the fund. And we met and I was like, I don't know whether what to tell her how much of a fan, da, da, da. Then I went to a concert with a friend who knows her. And we went and hung out backstage. And in my head, I said to my friend, I was like, I'm really gonna try not to freak out, but like, this is doing some younger stuff for me. Like, you know, da, da, da. I meet her and I just go, I really have to tell you that you made me an artist. And oh my God, my, my poster was modeled after your poster. And then I just blur. <laughs> and it was so embarrassing because my friend that was next to me was like, girl, I've seen you meet so many celebrities that like, you know, if we're doing silly fame rankings, I was like, but it's not about that. Sometimes mm. someone just has like a hold on your like thing. So I have met her. I did tell her we follow each other on Instagram. So young me is like freaking out at that, I guess, you know. I think that's fabulous. And also, I'm sure you've, you're at the point in your career now where you've had people come up to you and tell you similar things. So, do you ever find it cringe? No, I find it so sweet. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, give yourself a break. But, would you find it sweet if you just finished your show and you're backstage in your dressing room in what you think is a safe space? That's the question. (laughs) You know, imagine you come back to your dressing room and there's a super fan. It depends, because I'm sure you also have enough self-control and boundaries to, like, get it out and then then take yourself out of the room. True, I I didn't tell her. I learned about bottoming at your show. I bet she would have loved it. Yeah, yeah. Bottoming? Yeah, I'm sure she did. (laughs) Okay, well, I love that story. Thank you for sharing, even the cringe bits. Of course. 
I try, I've had that exact same moment even on this podcast where I'm like, do I tell this person that I am, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am gay for them? <laughs> <laughs> um, and will it be cringe? And so. And did you tell them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to. I think, you know, like people want to hear it, you know, as artists, it's like, it is nice to hear, you know. It's validating. And maybe. What I would say is that it potentially puts a limitation on your ability to become a friend with them. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. But there's always going to be that limitation because you're secretly freaking out every time oh, you see them. So. I couldn't be friends with her. I don't want to mm-hmm. be. You know? Uh-huh. I mean, my post- pedestal. Well, look, I've got like a little poster wall. She's right there still. Mm. Just so that, you know, you have to. You have mm-hmm. to. Prince is at the bottom, I think. Yeah, there's Prince at the bottom as well. Yeah, imagine... You're hanging out, and she comes back to yours for an afters, and then there's her face on your wall. Well, yeah, she's wouldn't, taking, it wouldn't work. She's taking coke off of a line of her face. It's just awful. <laughs> awful. <laughs> Don't do drugs, kids. Mm. Sorry, yeah, things that make me quit. Marina, not cocaine. Hey, everybody, I'm Dave Holmes. And I'm Matt McConkey. And we are the hosts of Homophilia, the podcast where we talk to awesome LGBTQ plus people about the pop culture that they are consuming and loving and the love lives that they are leading. The conversations that we wish we had had access to when we were growing up. The the conversations that we would like to eavesdrop on now. But we have them with the coolest people in the world. Like who, Matt? Sir Andy Cohen himself. What? Michael Patrick King, Tig Notaro, Alan Cumming, Jinx, Monsoon, and Vendela Creme. Countless queens from the Drag Race universe. We're asking all of them about the pop culture milestones that shaped them as queer people, and more importantly, who they're having sex with. There you go. It's the queer conversation they don't want you to have. We're having it on Homophilia every week on the World of Wonder Network. Tune in. Listen to Homophilia on the WOW Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. In a world full of straight people, aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? And so much more. Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. Okay, let's move on to your next item. Up next, we have your film or TV series, and it is Scary Movie. Okay, so obviously I was, like, filling this out on tour, and I think I was trying to push myself away from, like, standard answers that I thought. And I had to remember what I meant when I said Scary Movie. But this is, like, a bit, like, this is lowbrow, babe. This is lowbrow. That's okay. It's just Have you seen me? But when I listen to the podcast, people are really giving like you know really good good answers, and Scary Movie feels like my my miss. But it is just that scene where the guy is like getting wanked off in the cellar and like finally comes, and I just remember being like, oh, I'm definitely like an into men because I like no no. You told me in your email that it was because of Gay Ray. No, him too. But he's later on. He's later on, isn't he? I don't think so. I think, I think it's all the same. Okay. Well, there was a lot of gay shit happening. There in was Scary a lot Ray. of gay shit happening. <laughs> Wait, Gay Ray, fuck, he was hot too. He was yeah, so the way no, Oh my god, Gay Ray when he does the football scene where the um, you know where his like girlfriend is like, and he gets the girlfriend to dress up in the big football outfit. And he's like, mm-hmm. and I was so turned on. I was yeah. so turned on. Gay Ray is like the ultimate. Unfortunately, teenage gay fantasy because you fancy the jocks and the football players at school. And he's actually gay. You're like, one of them's probably gay. And Gay Ray is. Gay Ray is gay. He was so hot. I loved the Wayne Brothers so much. And I loved that he was doing gay shit. I may have like paused the video so many times. I may have like, yeah, I just did a lot of like gay like looking at on Scary Movie. And I remember like, it was the movie that all the lads were watching because it was like mm-hmm. dude bro comedy. So mm-hmm. we got to like both watch it together whilst having like very separate experiences about what we were enjoying. Mm-hmm. And that felt really gay. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think I've like had gay ray moments where like I've gotten with people that are like jockey, da 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 da. And at mm-hmm. the time I was like, 
how do I make fun of them? How do I make fun of these experiences? And Gay Ray was like, definitely, I called them a lot. I mean, I might have called the guys Gay Ray a lot of times as well, you know? <laughs> but there were so many things. I mean, I nearly put American Pie, like all of that kind of do, I was really into yes. that really like stupid, low bro comedy. Yes. But yeah. it was so homoerotic. Yes. It's just, the sad thing about, I think, our generation is that our our representation is incredibly problematic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. And, like, you know, I don't know what long-term damage that has had on me, but <laughs> but I'm sure it's there. Well, you know, just last week I was fucking a jock, and there we go, and I thought, wow, this is because of Scary Movie now. No. <laughs> That's what the representation has done. That's what the representation has done. But, you know... I loved that lowbrow stuff and I loved mm-hmm. that like kind of weird humor. And I also loved that it was like clearly so homoerotic and at the same time was marketing itself to like 40 straight, like angsty male teenagers who were also homoerotic. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, such a defining experience of my teens was being, you know, like a skinny, like athletic feminine, like gay boy that was never like, you know, had the choice of being out or in, you know, I was just known as that kid. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, I'm not unique that that exposes you to a lot of different experiences and confusing experiences with mm-hmm. like straight men in your school, because mm-hmm. you're often the place where they work out their, their homoeroticism too, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And so I would hang out with all these like straight boys at their houses, watching these like movies and, you know, eventually sit down and play a game of group cards with them all, you know? Um, (laughs) I'm trying to decide if that's innuendo. Well, it was that I was going to say another word and I thought, you know what, there's no need. We can just say we played cards. Uh But, you know, like, and the movies would always before and the smoke, you know, all of that stuff was part of it. And Scary Movie feels like it was, like, such a, of the zeitgeist of that time, of, like, being a teenager at that time, was, like, you watch the Scary Movies and you like quote them and you talk about them and kind of reminded me of the boys of school. But Yeah. Just going to what you said about not having a choice about being out or not, you know, how do you look back at that now? Do you see that as something that was advantageous to you or? I mean, it was hard, but I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I never had to do like a coming out. And at the time I was frustrated because I feel like, you know, people talk so much about queer people forcing agendas onto straight people, but straight people force us, straight culture rather, forces us to speed up our understanding of ourselves. I do wish I had more time. You know, I felt like I was mm-hmm. called all these words and told I was all these things before I had the time to really decide if I was those things. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the time I was being called queer and, you know, a bum liquor before I even knew again what bottoming was. I hadn't been mm-hmm. to my marina gig yet. And I wasn't really a sexual kid. Like, I, I wasn't, like, when I was, I feel like we all have different ages, but just comparing myself to other friends around me, like, I wasn't really talking about sex or thinking about sex at the same time as everyone else. But because of how I presented, I was thrown into Sexualized. That. Sexualized, yeah. yeah. And, like, I feel like yeah. it's so interesting because the, 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 the narrative around queer people is that we over-sexualize everything, that we turn everything into this, like, unsafe place. But actually, like, straight cis world is so uncomfortable with our expression that they force this narrative onto us. And so that's a regret that I have. But I think I'm really glad because I think it made me more confident in my 20s and my late teens because I had to have this kind of early experience of being, you know, the faggot at school. Um, And... I went to quite a a big, comprehensive working class school that, you know, you had to be tough in order to get through the day, whether you were queer or not. Mm-hmm. And so being queer on top just meant I learned a lot of lessons quicker, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I had the kind of opposite experience where I knew if I were too visible that I would receive that kind of attention that you described. So I really withdrew as a person and I hid and I found like the the darkest corner at, at school that I could you know tuck myself away in which did mean that I had more time to come to my understandings myself but it also I think ended up st- 
stunting that for me as well, you know. So I, it's interesting because I guess just to anyone listening, you know, it's the more I talk to people about this, the more I don't think there's any perfect way. And that everything has some advantages that you won't know about until oh, yeah. you get a bit older. Absolutely. Perspective. Along is like, with the disadvantages. Yeah. Perspective is everything. And also that what runs through the stories that we hear about queer people is that the responsibility is placed on us, but it really shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. You know, that actually, like, we're doing the best with, like, the what we're given. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately the responsibility should be on our caregivers and our teachers and our environments to, like, to make it that we don't have to make these decisions so young, you know? Very that. But until then, we just jack off to scary movie. Exactly. <laughs> and that, yeah, that apple pie and American pie. I didn't want to say it, but yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of the things that made Travis Alabanza queer. And we are back. And moving on to your next item, we have Oh My God Bar on a Wednesday night in Bristol. Wow, did I specify Wednesday night? I you love did. that's Fatina Sparkles. That is Fatina Sparkles, the drag queen at the time. Wow. I often wonder if Tina Sparkles still hates me. Um oh, no. I mean with good reason. I was an annoyed I shouldn't have been at the club. I wanted to shout this because it was so easy to name all these places that, you know, like I've got it all right and I've got it all figured out and have this like queer radical rep and like now I'm here at this age. But I think that like a lot has to be said for like your town gay bar mm-hmm. and all of its like imperfections and all of its like problems that it still exists and that it's still like doing stuff and OMG as much as I can try and be cool now and be like I would never step foot in there now it doesn't have this this and this at the age of like 14 to 16 17 again I'm so sorry mum yes I was going to the club <laughs> The fact that one, they didn't check ID too much, but two, I'm sure they do now. I'm sure they have really strict rules now. (laughs) But the fact that on a Wednesday I could go for like two pounds for student night and get like, not even drunk. It wasn't even about being drunk. Like just me and my friends that were queer, we'd go from like 16 and from sixth form really like regularly we would spend our wednesdays going to the gay bar and tina sparkles this like old school drag queen like old school would like host this kind of like bingo-y style thing and i'd never mm-hmm. really like seen a drag queen before in a club i'd never like seen that kind of style of comedy of like you know talking back to crowds which is again a very much like what i do now i'd never really seen like queer spaces and mm-hmm. For all of the different experiences I had there, and I'm sure some too young to have, again, just so glad I didn't have to, like, figure it out in London. I think when I got to London, at the right age to go clubbing, if I, that was my first experience queer clubbing, I think I would have made really different choices. Mm-hmm. And I felt like OMG, like, eased me into queer life and, like, to what I wanted and didn't want. And even though at the time I was, like, this is too this, and I'm seeing too many, like, bodybuilder-esque bodies and seeing too many white people. Even that trajectory pushed me to then, like, find myself in another way, even if Uh it was in response to, like, a lack of something. So, yeah, love OMG. Um, Just so many memories there. Bad, good, always ugly. (laughs) Tina Sparkles. I wonder if she's still working there. Just a legendary drag queen that was there every Wednesday, whether it was to, like, four underage 17-year-olds or, like, a group of, like, big people, big crowds, small crowds, she would do the same jokes. And, yeah, just a really special place. I I mean, firstly, I love that name, Tina Sparkles, obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a Strictly Ballroom reference, but it never occurred to me that it could also be a Crystal Meth reference. Ah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so that, that's, that's great. I'm glad I've got that new perspective on... Uh, Tina Sparkles, who's broken both her legs. I love that you had queer friends at 16 and you would go clubbing. I just think that's so rare. Yeah. yeah. And and lovely. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I know anyone who had queer friends when they were 16. All of no my, one in my generation. All of my friends turned out to be... I mean, now all of them are out apart from one. Like, out of my right. core group. 
I think we like didn't realize we were all gay, and then like one I by see. one, we started like mm-hmm. I came out, and everyone was like, "Okay, I'm cool with that." And then I was like, "Wait, I'm not just cool with that. I'm gay too." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel really lucky. I also moved to like I before I was in a school that was like in the suburbs, and then like it was in like an estate in the sub, like a council estate in the suburbs. And then when I was 16, I moved to like a sixth form that was in the center of Bristol. And the vibe definitely shifted. It was a lot more like artsy and like lots of like, yeah, everyone was at arts. Everyone went to like art college. I didn't go to art college, but everyone was there. I mean, it's very Bristol, like Mm -hmm. that kind of vibe. And yeah, everyone was like pretty queer and creative, which felt again, lucky. And when I moved to London for my brief appearance at university, um, it was definitely something that like, I noticed that I had, that others didn't, like, that I'd had this kind of quite queer teenage life as well. Mm-hmm. Just because of, mm-hmm. I think, being around, like, arty-farty people and Bristol, you know, it is a stereotype. There's lots of different types of Bristol, but there is definitely truth in some of the stereotype about Bristol mm-hmm. that it has got this kind of hippie left-wing culture that kind of means that a lot of people's parents, if they're in that middle-class area, which some of these kids' friends were, they're like calling their parents by their first name and like uh-huh. their parents are wearing like <laughs> floaty trousers and they're uh-huh. like, you're free to do whatever you want. Like that kind of vibe, uh-huh. which like I take the piss out of, but fair enough. It made all their kids buy. So like I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we'd all go to OMG and like on a Wednesday when we had six form the next day and we'd all go and we'd have like, a double lesson the next day and we just turned up so hungover and we thought we were really cool. Um, Love it. Yeah, it was great. And I, I still think you sound really cool. It, to, be, to be honest, it was, we did feel chic. Like, we were just, like, walking in and we were like, yeah, we were just... And our stamps, you know, we'd walk in and we'd make sure that our stamp that, like, showed we were at the club. We'd be like, oh, my God, sorry, we're not in yet. Like, and, like, stretch out and be like, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Camp. Yeah. Um, uh, I think actually maybe this moves us on to your next question, but I'm curious about how your gender is presenting at this point. Well, right now it's in my day off mode. I forgot <laughs> this might be fit. This is filmed, isn't it? Yeah. No. Sorry. I mean, I mean at this at this point in your oh at, at the club <laughs> at the club. Shut up, bitch! I'm like now it's in pajamas. What you fucking let the record state if this still makes it into the edit. You still, lo- you still look gorgeous and queer. No. I'm on my day off. Uh, what my what is my gender like? Well, I'm like, it's weird because like, you know, I first entering the gay bar, you also first really become aware of your body. I think, or I did anyway. I, I again, and this is just this like sexualized thing, of like before I was being maybe sexualized by like straight-ish boys at school and now I was being sexualized by like gay men and at the time you know I had like a 16 year old 17 year old 18 year old six pack whatever age I was you know I was skinny and light-skinned and wore like sports clothes in an ironic way so I was like unannounced to me doing that kind of um fitting into like a gay a gay mm-hmm. stereotype and it was actually like again like and young me used a lot of that anger of how I was feeling to talk bad about that space but actually that space really helped me become visibly gender non-conforming mm-hmm. I wore dresses for the first time at 16 because I was going to the gay bar wore makeup for the first time wore wigs wore heels and it was only because I was like feeling how the the men in the bars were treating me like a man that I knew that that wasn't how I wanted to be seen Mm-hmm. And so, although, yeah, younger me was angry about that, I think older me, the reason it's probably my special place is that every Wednesday I would kind of see my gender change. And it's weird, I would go through the club photos, you know, this was the, people were still putting club photos on Facebook and you'd wait, mm-hmm. you'd wait two days later for the reveal on Facebook of all the club photos. And I could track the photos over the years and see my makeup, you know, get better and worse um and see my outfits change from like sports clothes to dresses to like you know I went through phases of lace front wigs all the time you know corsets stuffing my bra eventually landing to where I am now but like the club was so fundamental for that and again maybe too early like I'm sure that there's going to be some argument that you shouldn't be there you know you're not an adult yet and I totally get that but again I think that 
all the things I did in London, I could only do because I had those yeah. years of like figuring it out. You yeah. know, I was definitely not being ready to like go to London and be a performer so young. I would have needed like three or four years more of like figuring out that I like wearing dresses, figuring out that mm-hmm. I like this, you know. And I guess in an ideal world, that would be in a, you'd be figuring that out in a space that wasn't a nightclub with right. drugs and alcohol. Of course. But that isn't what the world has provided for right. people. And, and this is it. You know, I think sometimes there's this pressure to like sanitize our own stories to make them mm-hmm. like safe for a 2022 20, model of thinking. And, you know, obviously my life in comparison to the queer people decades before me or a decade before me is so much more lucky and our school system was so much different you know they section 28 wasn't in place all these things so yes or for some of my education wasn't in place and like that's great but it wasn't suddenly a haven you know and like it's not now obviously but we didn't have like an lgbt i went to one of my old schools recently to give a book talk and they have like an lgbt reading group (laughs) i'm like wait you have enough lgbt people here to do a reading group like let alone people that read to do it i'm like You know, and we just, that wasn't the case. There was no LGBT history month. There was no like queer figures on the door. And I love that that's here and the kids are like, but we didn't have that. So we did have the clubs. And I think sometimes I've got in trouble in the past for like talking about being there young. And I paused and was like, do I keep wanting to say it? And I was like, well, this was a lot of our education and this was the realities. And yes, that maybe is wise. We know we've got issues around substance in our community and this and that and all these things. But the club can't be a demonized space either, you know? Yes, objectively, it was illegal for me to be there. And yes, it meant that I experienced some things that maybe I could have waited to. But also, it sped up the whole gender thing. Like, mm-hmm. it put that on speed, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it was so... That should have said speed down, not speed. Hashtag no drugs <laughs> in the club. Um, yeah, and we would go and... I, I remember I would go to my friend's house, who lived closer to the club, I'd get dressed out of, you know, typical cliche, I'd get out of my clothes that I was, like, walking around in, into the clothes that were ready for GAY. We'd split money on a taxi, and we'd go, and I'd be dressed up in these clubs, and I would be meeting other trans people. I didn't know that they were trans at the time. I didn't know the name for it. I couldn't tell the difference between me and them, and that made me realise, like, maybe I, I was part of that community, and even someone calling me, like, sister for the first time, like, another trans mm. woman, like, seeing me dressed up, and being like, oh, I've not seen you around, are you a new girl? And, like, me pretending and saying that I'm, like, new to town, except I'm, like, go to the sixth form down the road. All of that's part of it, you know? It's fun. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And it's, it, I mean, that's what this podcast should be for. And we talked about this at the beginning as well. But, you know, for people who are listening who are not in the community, you just have to listen to these stories with an open heart because there is a lot of stuff that we've been through that isn't necessarily ideal, but I'm sure everyone listening can can take that message and and also hear you advocating for it to be better for other people. Yeah, well, I mean, some people get drunk on fields and in, and in parks, and I just got drunk at a drag queen bingo show. <laughs> okay, so moving on to your final item, and I know, Travis, you've got a hard out, so let's go into it up next is your wild card and you have said thrift shopping which i think yuck go on tell me i just wanted to be cliche i just wanted to say (laughs) yes i'm a queer and i put thrift shopping on things that made me queer a granny vintage cardigan will do that if you weren't gay before you put on an embroidered granny knit cardigan you surely will have to be but you know, um, uh, I can just see a <laughs> boyfriend right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. boyfriend. <laughs> right, right. And they weren't gay until they got the brooch. Uh-huh. Um, but <laughs> I think this is for me goes hand in hand with clubbing. I didn't have any money to do all these new clothes, and I didn't have any time and resources to get new dresses. And so I would spend the weekend going to thrift stores. Because I was like, maybe I won't wear these dresses again, so I need to get them cheap. And mm-hmm. um, the charity shops were so much nicer than the high street stores because they wouldn't judge you for, like, trying on the clothes. And they wouldn't judge you for, like, trying on the dresses. And Whereas when I would go into H&M or, you know, God forbid, Topshop, uh, the changing rooms weren't as 
that's great, you know, and yeah. I think thrift stores, the people that ran them, you know, we have such a weird, it's easy to build up this like defense against people outside our community because of how much targeting we get. But all these old ladies would just be so excited that I was trying on their dresses and styling them mm -hmm. and doing whatever with them. So yeah, thrift stores, I felt really reminiscent doing a lot of these lists. I was like looking back a lot. I felt like I was in a certain, all these things come from like a very certain age bracket. Mm -hmm. And I just felt so like fond of the memories of my younger self going around all these Bristol charity shops where the average age was like 60. And yeah. I'm trying on all these dresses. What was it like wearing, going out into the world, being gender non-conforming the first times that you did it? Like in the daylight, not the, at the club? The first time was so exhilarating because my friend was amazed. My friend Ella, she was so good about it. She could, I wasn't sure of why it was a big deal, but I could tell that everyone else was like a bit nervous. And she just made me feel like it was like part of an event. And we just walked around, we took photos, we like went to the coffee store and she just kind of made it this huge, amazing thing. And I think at that time I hid it behind an alter ego, you know, like we all mm -hmm. have or do or whatever. And it was like the unveiling of that alter ego. Mm -hmm. And the, yeah, the first few times it was amazing. And then, you know, then you start to notice what happens. And that was hard because I was still so young. So mm -hmm. you're, you are experiencing, you know, a big shift in your safety. Mm -hmm. And so that was difficult, but it felt powerful, really. It just felt powerful. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad, you know? I'm on yeah. like 11 years of like choosing to do this. And yeah. I'm glad I started young because it builds well, a kind of, yeah. That's what I wanted to ask you because I'm sure everyone can imagine what the, the disadvantages and the dangers are of being a gender non-conforming person in the world. What are some of the advantages? I think the advantages is that I have such a strong sense of what I want. Uh -huh. And I think that becomes from every day, picking something that you know might give you short-term pain, but you have a long-term sense of what you want. And I think that having that from a young age was invaluable because my, my sense of no and yes felt really strong at a young age because I had to learn my boundaries really quick because being gender non-conforming kind of rids that of a lot of your consent in the world. But also beyond that, I think it really helps to you be your own cheerleader as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and like, what bonds me with, and it brought me loads more friends. Because mm -hmm. I, I, you're visibly signifying something to the world. Mm -hmm. And so all the right kind of people were attracted to you, not just mm -hmm. in like relationships, but friendships and all the wrong people weren't. It's a very quick way of signifying who you want in your life and you don't. Because the people that aren't worth your time will shout at you and the people that are worth your time will shout a compliment at you, mm -hmm. you know? And so I made some great friends, all the other gender non-conforming people, you know, I'm from a, Bristol is a city, but it also has small town vibes. And so there were a few of us walking around the street and we all became good good mates you know one of them now does my makeup here Dominique she's amazing she's my makeup artist now she was the doll on the street too it was great you know she's I still stopping that. around and yeah I love it well I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up thank you I, I thank you so much for sharing and for being so eloquent and so thoughtful I just I'm such a fan and this has been one of my favorite conversations in a long time so really appreciate you being involved and I cannot wait to read your book Thank you. I want them to send it to you. I loved this. And uh, yeah, I'm sure you get told this a lot, but I've just so appreciated how you've kept your platform queer and radical and shouting out the good fight when I'm sure oh, there's thanks. been loads of temptations to not. So yeah. Uh, I just, you know, it's been both. I've still yeah. sold out. In of course. Of oh, none of the, <laughs> none of the above, baby. None of the above. None of the above. Where can people follow you and what can they do to support you? Follow me around the streets of Bristol or <laughs> Travis Alabanza on social medias and get a copy of None of the Above because I think yes. it's a good book. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for your time, right. Travis. Thanks, Can't wait babe. to see you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
Thank you to Travis, and thank you to you for listening to this week's episode of The Things That Made Me Queer. If you liked hearing from Travis and you want to know a little bit more about what they're up to, they have a show on right now called The Sound of the Underground at the Royal Court Theatre in London. Big deal. I'm going to see it next week. I'm so excited. It's been getting rave, rave, rave reviews, like everything that they do. And the cast is full of some of my very favorite performers in London. I think it's a fusion of drag and cabaret and theater. And like everything they do, I'm sure it's going to be very smart and very thought-provoking. So uh, if you're in London, go check it out. And that is it for this week. I will be back next week with more stuff that made us queer. See you next time. Bye. The Things That Made Me Queer is a World of Wonder production. Our theme song is Something Like Summer by Cave Boy.